Hello and welcome to the People, Place and Nature podcast. A really fascinating episode this week as we have the incredible Professor Alistair Driver, the Director of Rewilding Britain joining us. And this episode is frankly one that I've been wanting to talk about for ages as we get to talk about rewilding, what it is, what it isn't, how it works, and of course about all the animals that may or may not be making a return to the UK. Alongside our usual sponsors, Marshalls and Vectorworks, we have a new sponsor who will be helping support this episode, and rewilding and regeneration projects across the UK, which is Water Offsets. Water Offsets have delivered systems to create and sell credits for a range of environmental issues, from water neutrality to nutrient neutrality and now biodiversity net gain. If you want to diversify your farm, rewild your estate, create new habitats, or get planning permission if you're a developer, they could get you back on track, help you get the permissions you need, and potentially create a new revenue stream for your business as well. So make sure to check out Water Offsets, and you can find more information about them in the description below. Good morning. Morning. Thank you so much for joining us today and bringing us to this wonderful site. Um, it's quite a frosty morning, so we're wrapped up really warm <laughs> to try and keep the cold at bay while we, while we have our conversation. Um, but one of the things I thought would be really fascinating to sort of kick off with is talking a bit about sort of what actually is rewilding and maybe if you could give yourself a little bit of an introduction as well and how you sort of got into this sphere. Okay um, well I'm Alistair Driver I'm the director of Rewilding Britain and um, I'm a lifelong ecologist naturalist and um, very lucky to have become the first full-time conservationist working on rivers in this country for the Thames Water Authority back in the early 80s. That evolved through a career uh, with the National Rivers Authority and then the Environment Agency uh, ending up with me being head of conservation nationally for the Environment Agency for 15 years. I left six years ago looking for a new challenge and I found, found almost immediately this incredibly exciting opportunity as director of Rewilding Britain. So I've been doing that now for six years mm -hmm. and it's a real privilege to be involved in this movement which is, which is slowly but surely starting to take us in the right direction on climate change and biodiversity. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's something that seems to be on everybody's lips at the moment. So many people are talking about it or interested in finding out more, yeah. which is why I think it's so fantastic that we can have this opportunity to talk to you about it. And I think one of the things that maybe we should talk about first is sort of clearing up the different sort of terminology you yeah. hear around sort yeah. of these, these, these things to do with the environment. So some of the ones I've noted that I very often hear are obviously rewilding, agroforestry, wood pasture, conservation, and regenerative farming. So they're yeah. the sort of terms you quite often yeah. hear. Yeah. And I think there's quite often a lot of confusion between where they overlap, what do they actually mean? So yeah. maybe if we could start Okay, well, that. there's quite a bit to sort of unpick there. So mm. first of all, let me give you the, the tweetable definition of rewilding that I usually use. Mm. And that is the large scale restoration of ecosystems to the point where nature is allowed to take care of itself. Mm. But within that definition, you then, we then have to unpick some of the words. So large mm. scale, what do we mean by large scale? Well, in, in England and Wales, to be honest, we're, we're considering what we call large scale at only around 1500 acres, mm -hmm. uh, which isn't very big. Yeah. Um, and in fact, in my job as an advisor, I, I will, uh, uh, advisor of landowners, I will visit sites of 250 acres plus, mm -hmm. what we call medium scale, 250 to 1500 medium scale. but. Internationally, of course, that's pathetically small, you know. Yeah. If you, but we have to accept that that's where we are at this point yeah, in time we're, in we're a, a small densely, densely crowded yeah. small country. So large scale restoration. And then 
of ecosystems to the point where nature is allowed to take care of itself. And this is this is really important because this this brings into play the spectrum of rewilding. Because mm -hmm. if you're if you're at the point where nature is truly taking care of itself at a large scale, mm -hmm. in effect, you've rewilded. Mm -hmm. But we're rewilding, we're, we're moving in that direction. We're trying to encourage and catalyze action to take people towards that point mm -hmm. and get as close as it, close to it as we possibly can. But uh, it is a spectrum of activity and mm -hmm. the vast majority of sites are on, on that journey, roughly halfway, two thirds of the way up that spectrum. Mm -hmm. So then we come to other, uh, other types of nature conservation related land use like mm -hmm. regenerative agriculture, nature reserves, nature friendly farming, etc. And the, 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 I guess the key diff one of the key differences is that rewilding mm -hmm. is, is primarily about nature restoration. Yeah. It's primarily about nature, nature restoration and nature restoration in, in ways that allows nature to determine what happens where, what appears where, what disappears where, mm -hmm. um, rather than managing it, managing that nature in a, in a particular way. So if we compare rewilding with traditional nature conservation, mm -hmm. uh, I, can com I can refer to this site now. So this is Alice Pond Local Nature Reserve. This is a site that I created over 25 years ago and I've managed ever since in my village in Berkshire. And we manage it. We manage it um, to be a mix of meadow, mm -hmm. ponds, scrub, trees. And if we didn't manage it, if we were rewilding it, this scrub, this blackthorn that we, and hazel and mm -hmm. bramble, um, much of which we planted many years ago, that would start to invade the whole of the site. Mm -hmm. But we cut this meadow once a year um, for, for wildlife, grass and management purposes, and we mm -hmm. w w maintain it as a wild, wildflower meadow. This pond would totally vegetate over, mm -hmm. particularly because it's got swamp stone crop and invasive species in it. Uh, and it wouldn't look like a pond most of the year round if we didn't, every few years, get a volunteer group in to clear it out. Mm -hmm. So that's nature conservation, that's nature reserve management. Mm -hmm. Whereas in a rewilding site, you're acting on a big enough scale that you would let that go, let it, yeah. let it lead. If we come to regenerative agriculture, for example, um, one of the simple ways that I try to differentiate between that and rewilding is that regenerative agriculture is primarily agriculture. It's yeah. primarily about producing food, but doing so in a way that is really high-end, nature-friendly. Yeah, in a more sensitive manner, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So rewilding primarily about producing nature, allowing nature, but on the back of it, and we can come onto this, you can still produce food from it, and, mm -hmm. they, and, and that happens across the country, but it's not the primary purpose. Yeah. Now, the other thing to say is that with most of these, nature reserve, nature restoration, regenerative agriculture, rewilding, with most of these things, they all look quite similar to start with. Mm -hmm. If you're starting on a project, you are intervening quite a lot to mm -hmm. kickstart that recovery. The vast majority of rewilding projects in this country are, are active rewilding, not yeah. passive rewilding. Mm -hmm. Passive rewilding, you more or less just let nature do its thing from day one. Mm -hmm. But active rewilding, you're intervening to try and kickstart that recovery. Yeah. And the reason that we're doing that 
a lot in this country is because we've lost so much and yeah. we've got a biodiversity crisis and we've got a climate emergency mm. and crisis and emergency mean acting fast because mm. it's a major issue that yeah. we need to tackle. So, so the vast majority of projects are doing stuff to start with that, that is very similar to creating a nature reserve or, mm. um, or, or nature friendly farming. But what happens is you, so you have the same sort of trajectory of activity in, in increasing in the early years, mm. but then with, with nature reserve management, et cetera, you might, that might plateau out, mm -hmm. um, or, or, or it will plateau, should plateau out over time. You don't need to intervene anymore. You just need to maintain. Yeah. Whereas with rewilding, it would decline mm -hmm. uh, almost ideally yeah. back to zero mm -hmm. in terms of intervention. So that, that's a key difference. Mm -hmm. That's a really good explanation. It's really interesting to hear um, sort of how, how they work differently. But obviously, they are kind of there's similarities between them, but it's, yeah. it's the end result is what is what's different. Yeah, ultimately. and there's a blur, and there are blurred boundaries between them yeah. as well. You know, you know, there are some sites that are clearly rewilding. There are some that are sort of borderline rewilding, borderline yeah. nature friendly farming. And, that's it, and you probably get somewhere some areas people rewild, and other areas they manage. So it kind of becomes a bit more of a mottled effect in terms of some aspects being managed and others not. That's very commonplace. That mm -hmm. you know, particularly the the large private estates which yeah. take up about a quarter of the area of rewilding that I've visited and I'm mm. dealing with for rewilding Britain when you're dealing with these big private estates often they're quite rightly continuing to farm their most yeah. productive areas mm -hmm. uh, and they might have a bit of regenerative agriculture in another area mm -hmm. and then in other and in another area often a third or so of the mm -hmm. site they're rewilding and having that juxtaposition of these different approaches is really valuable yeah. um, because they're complementary to each other you know they, mm -hmm. they often have things species in certain areas doing really well which will move into another type of management and vice versa. Yeah. And they're all and it's also really useful because it it demonstrates that we can do this uh, without having to rewild everywhere. You know, yeah. you know, we have a target of rewilding Britain, 5% of mm. the country rewilding. Um, and, you know, w one of the ways of achieving that 5%, yes, we want large swathes of our uplands mm. to be rewilded, but there's no reason why we can't have pockets of rewilding in the lowlands connected uh, by by nature friendly farming to yeah. other pockets of rewilding that will still help to deliver significant nature recovery. Yeah, that's it because part of it is the connectivity, which is so important. Yeah. You know, big sites are great and easy to you know count as a big win, but if they're not connected, it just ends yeah. up an island in a sea of yeah, um, you know farming or whatever. That, so things can't move and you can't you don't get genetic diversity. That's right. That that's right. That's well. right. It's habitat fragmentation is a yeah. huge contributor to the decline in biodiversity mm. in this country. Yeah, I always find it a bit crazy considering how many hedgerows and things we have and how much they're encouraged. Yeah, but, um, but you look at the quality of those hedges. Well, you know, that, that's I, the thing. I was just exactly. out of sight in yeah. East Anglia this week, and they're skeletal. A lot of them are skeletal. They're not actually performing a function. Absolutely, and I think that's that's one of the things that always struck me when I've looked at some of these rewilding sites. Of the first thing is to just kind of let that aspect go. Yeah, you know, it, it's some some aspects of management are actually yeah. can be incredibly damaging. Yeah, um, or they could become much more of a beneficial asset if they weren't yeah, managed. Yeah, I mean, this is um, this is very much what a rewilding, it's not a hedge, because yeah. it's a thicket uh, that we've planted, but that's what a rewilding hedge should look like. It should have curtains of vegetation, yeah. uh, curtains of scrub intertwined with uh, grass and herbs mm. coming up from the ground. Uh, such an important zone for nesting that, birds. And a sufficient density that things can yeah. actually nest and live within it. Yeah. Because if you think about normal hedgerows on farms which are clipped and cut back, 
actually they provide almost no shelter yep. and um, they don't really have any capacity for significant sort of fruit production or anything else that, that species will need. Yeah. And they don't even particularly provide a, provide a great deal of shelter to livestock either. So, yeah, that's right. you know, that's right. there's a lot of benefit that could be derived from that. So going, going back quickly to sort of the passive versus active rewilding, mm. that's a really good example um, on, on hedges. Um, actually, you know, leaving them is essentially passive <coughs> of, of letting it go. But some of the active elements um, that you typically see so the first thing you sort of talked about is really we need to sort of kickstart it in a lot of cases because actually land is so degraded or in the trees as an example, if you don't have seed trees around for the species you, you want, you need to introduce those. Um, and if you want you know, a certain degree of tree cover to help protect soils or anything else while that's happening, you obviously need to introduce those if the area doesn't have them. But what other things are very common? I assume river regeneration and things. Yeah, so uh, um, let's, let's start from the top of catchment. So in the uplands, for example, mm -hmm. peat bog restoration, yeah. very important mm -hmm. uh, part of a rewilding initiative. If there is upland bog, um, trying to restore healthy, wet, you know, wet peat with a, you know, the right mix of vegetation cover mm -hmm. is really important. On the slopes, yes, often, um, although of course every site that's rewilding should be allowing natural regeneration of vegetation. That's mm -hmm. a given yeah. for any site. Um, there are plenty of sites I've dealt with in the uplands where trees are so sparse mm -hmm. uh, or so limited in their species mix that planting is yeah. appropriate. Mm -hmm. So it's a mix then of natural regen and planting. Um, so yes, tree planting. Uh, slowing the flow off the hills a lot. Yeah. You know, a lot of our uplands have been drained to get water off the hills quicker, mm -hmm. um, to enable them to be grazed. Um, so restoring that hydrology is very important. Introducing leaky dams into watercourses, uh, blocking up, breaking up land drains in strategic places. Mm -hmm. And that literally um, applies all the way down into the lowlands as well, of course, uh, yeah. breaking up of land drains. Um, restoring the, the, the hydrology, restoring the morphology mm -hmm. of, of streams and rivers. So good old river restoration, which is what I cut my teeth on in, in the 80s. Um, so so all of that. And then uh, things like removing infrastructure and fences yeah. that are no longer necessary, because mm -hmm. you, want, you, want, you want to try and treat a, a bigger site as one unit, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, that, and then allowing, uh, either allowing grazing animals to access it, like wild deer species, mm -hmm. for example, or and or uh, introducing proxies mm -hmm. for the animals that we used to have, like the ancient aurochs, and that yeah. and so so that is that means rare breed cattle, rare breed pigs, and where appropriate ponies in mm -hmm. small numbers roaming over big areas. Yeah. So that's a that's a reintroduction of, a, you know, rare breeds basically, mm -hmm. not necessarily native species, but rare breeds, and you you know argue native breeds if, in effect, and then. Also, another intervention, one of 27 interventions that we've logged so far, is species reintroduction, mm -hmm. i.e. native species reintroduction for species that are either extinct in the country altogether mm -hmm. or that are absent from a region of the country and reintroduction is important um, to get them re-established. Mm -hmm. so, so that's a range of the sorts of things that might happen on a given site. And I've, we, we've, I've got data on 50-odd sites and we know what the popular ones are, and and obviously they are um, things like introducing grazing animals, uh, yeah. reducing. The other one I should have said is uh, a common thing is reducing sheep numbers significantly, mm -hmm. either removing sheep altogether, 
or or a big reduction in numbers. Yeah, I think sheep's something that always comes up, which brings me to a question that I always hear raised or or argument against rewilding is what mm. happens sort of in the uplands, yep. um, specifically Wales, where obviously they have huge amounts of sheep grazing, but it's a prime area that could be enhanced because it's not that productive compared yep. to other areas of farmland. So how does What's your kind of view for those areas? How might they look in the future? What are the issues they have and what do you think the solutions Yeah, well, let, let's just talk about sheep specifically and food. Mm. Um, because the pattern is this. Across the 50 sites which I've got data, which is about 40,000 hectares worth of land, so quite, mm. you know, when you add it all up, quite significant chunk. Yeah. The, the, the figures are this, that, that sheep are, have reduced to 6% 6 of what they were prior to rewilding across those sites. So it's a small percentage. So that's, a, that's quite a big hit on sheep. Mm -hmm. um, cattle numbers have actually gone up. Mm -hmm. Big numbers have gone up, pony numbers have gone up, all these other species. But you know, if we're talking about food, then cattle and pigs, yeah. they've actually gone up, they've increased. So the overall impact is approximately, it's just over 50% food production. Mm -hmm. from those sites by in terms of what we call livestock units mm -hmm. there are livestock units for each individual animal type i've done the calculations it's 54 percent mm -hmm. uh at this point in time so it doesn't mean no that's that's not no food that's half half the meat but yeah. all of that half is is sheep is lamb yeah and we export between a third and a half of our lamb mm -hmm. Lamb consumption is declining quite fast in this country anyway. Mm. And I've done the calculations. And if, and if we were to achieve the 5% rewilding that rewilding Britain sets itself out to try and catalyze, and we were to apply the same reduction in sheep numbers across all of those sites, yeah. we would go from 34 million sheep in this country to 33 million sheep. So it's actually that, very minimal. That is negligible yeah. mm -hmm. given the trends in meat eating and the trends in lamb eating mm -hmm. in this country. So that's the first thing to say. And we can do that. We know because we're mapping it. We can do this rewilding without impacting at all on food production in terms mm -hmm. of significant impact uh, uh, versus other impacts on food production, mm -hmm. which I've already mentioned. Yeah. Oh, the other thing, by the way, to bear in mind is we waste 40% of the food we produce to eat as well. 40%, mm. which is staggering. Yeah. That's millions and millions of tons of food every year. So if we're serious about food security, then clearly mm. we need to be looking at distribution, pricing and waste. Those are mm. three big areas. So then let's come to the parts of the country that are, you know, predominantly um, sheep farming mm. dominated. And, and there are parts of Cumbria, for example, and, and mid Wales, mid and north Wales. Um, and yes, uh, there, they, there is, a, there is a, an income source, uh, which is obviously subsidized, and, and a culture which is built around that type of livelihood. And there is no way that we should be forcing rewilding down the throats of those people, forcing them. Um, to suddenly make a dramatic change. But nobody's doing that. Mm. Nobody is forcing anyone to rewild. Rewilding is a voluntary activity. Mm. And this is a this is a common misconception that 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 somehow, you know, people are being driven to do it. No, they can do it if they want to do it. Mm. Um, and uh, and they don't have to if they don't want to. So I, I we are in a very fortunate position where there are so many people now putting their hands up for rewilding 
that we, you know, we don't need to go um, trying to persuade anyone in terms of rewilding in terms of private landowners, mm -hmm. because there are plenty of private landowners already investigating. Where we do need to go persuading is the big landowning organizations like the Forestry Commission, yeah. the MOD, the Crown Estate, the Duchy of Cornwall, mm. et cetera, et cetera. Those organizations do need to make a step change. Mm -hmm. And people like myself will be, you know, knocking on doors in the, in the next year or so, trying to uh, get them to make that step change mm -hmm. in the rewilding direction. Because that's where you will see the most significant uh, impact if they yeah. if they buy into rewilding as part of the solution, not yeah. the silver bullet, mm -hmm. part of the solution, a significant part of the solution. I say, what are you saying? Some of these larger states are putting aside sort of a quarter of their land. I think you mentioned oh, a third, sort of on, typically a third. Yeah, typically yeah, a third. I mean, yeah. if you get those involved, it's such a massive yeah. So that portion of the UK's landmass. Yeah, it? I'm less worried about the private individuals. I'm mm. more worried about the government bodies and the big businesses like the water companies. Yeah. Who are, some water companies own a lot of upland, and it's in really poor condition. Yeah. Um, because we have, we're fortunate, you know, in our national parks, for example, we know that large percentages of our SSSIs are supposed to be our jewels in the crown are actually not in favorable condition. Yeah, um, decline, yeah. So there's plenty of data on that. We know we know where to go. We've got map, mapping that tells us where the problems are. We've got mappings, uh, mapping that tells us where non-productive agriculture is. Mm -hmm. And we've got maps that tell us where the big landowners are. So we put all that together and we start to become more targeted. Yeah, no, that's interesting. It's, I mean, it is, it's vital that these big organizations get involved. Are, are there any that are sort of making, are there any that are sort of committed to anything yet? And obviously the National Trust is, is one of the, yeah. they're the second biggest landowner, aren't they, I think, in the country? Yeah, National Trust have made some um, great progress. They, mm. you know, of course they have, they're involved, for example, in Wild Ennerdale, which has been going a long mm. time. Um, they've got a uh, site at Eastern Moors in the Peak District, which they're involved in, which is a, you know, another major rewilding sites so so and there are smaller sites national trust sites around the country that i've dealt with which are mm. definitely in moving in that direction they could do more of course mm. um being such a major landowner they have they have challenges as do other big organizations around tenancies yeah long-term multi-generational tent farming tenancies which are you know have a particular type of farming associated with them so mm. it's, I, I get that it's tricky but mm. those tenants they have lots of other tenancies that are shorter and they have the opportunity then to make changes mm. no i think that's i think that's true it's um this is one of the things isn't it it's the challenge that there's so many different situations that you have to be able to respond to yeah that is that can, that can complicate complicate things because i think this is part of the big problem for rewilding is that there is kind of this view of the value you do just leave everything. And actually that's not, as you've clearly made yeah, the yeah. case, that isn't what happens at all. Um, and actually it's much more complicated and actually there are a lot of other considerations. My view with, with all these things, when it comes to the environment, it's all trade-offs. Where, where are the trade-offs gonna be? Or where are the compromises gonna be with, for whatever it is, be it land use, be it, as you say, tenancies, which I think is something people typically don't think of. Yeah. I mean, I've spoken to farmers in the past where they, there may be a farmer and they own the land, but actually they have a tenant that's managing that portion of it. Yeah. And they want to do something. And as you say, they, they can't. So their hands end up tied. Yeah. Well, that farmer that's, that's renting it isn't interested because they're just there trying to 
get as much as they can from it. Yeah. Um, so there's this constant, you know, yeah, um, series of cross purposes. The ideal scenario is where you bring the tenants along on the journey, and the yeah, tenants, absolutely. you know, they'll still be far, you know, as I've described, you still need proxy herbivores, so there's still farming that stock management required. Mm. And what we we are, and there are some nice examples out there where this is happening. And actually, what's really interesting, you're starting to get a hybrid role starting to appear, which is yeah. a part stockman, part ecologist, part nature guide, you yeah. know, and they have to have skills in all those areas. Mm -hmm. um, and that is, you know, I've seen a few of those those kind of roles starting to appear, which is, a, yeah. you know, it's, it's helping us to main sh make sure that we you still have the employment mm -hmm. uh, and the knowledge and the skills of the, the individuals being associated with that site. Um, but they're they're tackling it in a new way, and on jobs, by the way, the data shows so far that we've got a sixty five percent increase in jobs. So mm -hmm. don't let anyone tell you that actually, you know, it doesn't involve people. Actually, yeah. rewilding does involve people. It creates more jobs. It creates more volunteer opportunities. Yeah, well, I think also it creates forms of secondary income as well, which people wouldn't necessarily think yep. of. We'll come we'll come to some of those later, I think. But um, how what I wanted to ask as well is how it, people's attitudes are changing because I think. You know, we've talked about that people understand or are starting to understand that there's different ways to do rewilding. It isn't necessarily this one set way of doing things. It isn't yeah. just leaving everything alone. But unfortunately, that still often is the perception. So how are you finding people's reception to the concept of it? Yeah, oh, well, it's it's been really fascinating. So I've only been in, in the role six years, um, but already I've seen a big change in attitudes mm. in that time. Yeah. When I started, a lot of people said, oh, you can't use the R word, you know, it's toxic or it's mm. scary, it's wolves and bears, land abandonment. And, uh, you know, the organisation, Rewilding Britain, myself, we spent a lot of time trying to bust those myths. Mm -hmm. And I think we have been quite successful at that, you know, by just, by actually showcasing real projects and, mm -hmm. and showing people, no, look at this, that's none of those things that you just described, uh, in quite the opposite. And so we have this great network, this rewinding network on our website, we've got over 70 case examples, case studies from around the country. Mm -hmm. And that and that plus the public speaking, the media stuff, and lots of mm -hmm. other organizations as well starting to get it, um, that, that does mean that attitudes are changing. And we've actually moved from that point where, oh, you can't use that word, you know, mm. and it's too scary, to actually the point now where everyone's using the word, and yeah. it's kind of, it's almost dumbed down to mean almost anything yeah. uh, that involves the slightest bit of nature restoration, like not mowing a roundabout or something. Mm. So, so we do have to keep reminding people that, you know, this is the definition. Yes, you can contribute towards the journey, even yeah. at garden scale or here at pocket nature reserve scale, you can contribute. But if we're going to get into true rewilding, we're talking really large scale stuff. Yeah. But, you know, that's a nice problem to have now mm -hmm. that we're actually the word is being overused yeah. and too loosely used. Whereas, you know, some people didn't even want to mention it. Now, I'm not suggesting that we've cracked it completely. Government is still reluctant to use the word in certain circles. Yeah. So are some organizations. I've got a. <laughs> I've got a glossary list of ridiculous alternative sentences and phrases that organizations have chosen to use instead of using the word rewilding. <laughs> and I can assure you they are consistently boring yeah. and non-memorable <laughs> and they ain't, they ain't going to stick. Rewilding is going to stick. It has stuck. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had a YouGov poll a year or so ago which showed that over 80% of the public supported rewilding <laughs> and wanted to see more of it. So, it, you know, we, we kind of over the hump of that challenge. Yeah. We've still got little pockets of resistance to tackle. Yeah. 
Interesting, interesting. So where do you think the most significant rewilding will take place? Do you think it will be the uplands? Um, or are there areas which are sort of surprising you that are coming up, like say, for example, in parts of, um, I don't know, the lowlands, are you seeing more sites come up there because there's obviously a lot of private estates? Yeah, it, it, yeah, it, it, it depends on what, what we mean by significant. So, mm -hmm. so in scale terms, it's the uplands. And, in, in, yeah. in, and of course, if you go to Scotland, Oh, We've yeah, got some course, really yeah, massive yeah. projects going on, fantastic projects, Glenfeshie and places like that, Allerdale. Mm -hmm. But in England and Wales, yeah, scale-wise, if we if we could tackle thousands of hectares on block in our uplands, mm -hmm. then that would be pretty special. And we're not we're not we've got a few sites of around a few a few thousand hectares, but you know, if we were to go up to ten, say ten thousand Northern Pennines. Uh, uh, Peak District uh, and Brecon Beacons, those sorts of yeah. areas, you know, which which a lot of which are quite ha highly degraded in biodiversity yeah. terms. Yeah. Then, of course, you could make a big difference. Mm -hmm. um, but to see really transformational change in a shorter time, um, probably lowland Britain, you know, at a, at a mm. smaller scale, on you know, say a few thousand hectares in a in a in in an area which has been farmed. Even though it's only marginally productive, farmed intensively, and and the soil is knackered and the water mm. is polluted, um, that that's where you would see particularly transformational mm. change. And I, I have a I have an example. It's not I actually probably describe it as an upland site, but it's it's not it's not true upland. Um, I I'm a private advisor for a Broughton Hall estate in Yorkshire, and that's moving a third of the estate from intensive sheep to a massive scale tree planting program hmm. with and and what's happened there has been truly transformational because yeah. you've gone from bowling green billiard table sheep grazing large numbers of sheep for long periods um to uh rough grassland uh with trees planted in it hmm. and the rough grasslands appeared obviously once we've taken the sheep off but already in the space of two years that is heaving with invertebrates, yeah. heaving with bird life. It has transformed the bioabundance mm -hmm. in the space of two years. Yeah. Uh, and I do moth trapping and I've gone from collecting, catching, sorry, I've gone from catching 10 or 20 individual specimens of say 10 species in a trapping session to 500 to 1,000 wow. individuals of mm. 30 species in the similar place at a similar time of year on a similar evening. Now mm. it's not a scientific study, but yeah. I know that that is a big sign because I trap all over the country yeah. and I, I've never caught numbers like it. Mm. And, that, and that's, that's purely from the recovery of this architecture and structure of the, of the vegetation. Hmm. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. So how, so how about some of these big sites then? So what's the biggest rewilding site in the UK and what, what are they doing there? Just to give an idea of what's well, happening. Well, I scale. I don't cover Scotland, but the biggest sites are in Scotland. Yeah. And um, so you know, there's huge stuff going on. Cairngorms, Cairngorms Connect, yeah. many tens of thousands of hectares. Um, and uh, you know, I'm not familiar with all the interventions, but uh, there's no doubt in the, in some of these places, deer management mm -hmm. is the one most significant intervention mm -hmm. that that they are applying okay. um, because. Natural, allowing natural regeneration in those landscapes is still some fantastic habitats left. So natural regen of the right range of species will happen if you take yeah. the pre if you take the grazing pressure off. So deer, deer control in the absence of wolf and lynx, deer control is necessary in some mm -hmm. of those sites. 
no doubt about it. Um, that's where the really big projects are. If you come down into uh, England and Wales, well, obviously Annadale. Yeah. That's a, I think that's around 8,000 hectares. Mm -hmm. That's a big site. That is big, Quite yeah. remote for, for people to see. And, th and that's another reason why where, we need... Whereabouts is that, sorry? Well, that's in West Cumbria. Okay. So you have to literally go all the way around, you know, Cumbria to get into, into the valley, really, mm -hmm. to visit it. Uh, unless you're going to walk across the hills, which would be great. Um, <laughs> but... Um, that, that's why it's really important that we have more and more bigger and better sites across the country. Yeah. You know, we, you know, I have to say we could, we, you know, we should aspire to a nep in every county as a starting yeah. point. Well, actually, we kind of, I said that probably four or five years ago, but actually we're probably not far off that now because oh, wow. I know mm. enough landowners around the country who are, who are on the NEP journey mm. at, at a similar scale. There's not one in every county, but, you know, it's, 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 there's been a hell of a lot of progress in the last three or four years on that. Mm -hmm. um, I've, got a, I've got a list of over 100 landowners that I've been to see uh, who are on the rewilding journey um, wow. in England and Wales. So, mm. so, yeah, it's moving in the right direction. But don't, don't forget what I said about private versus public. Yeah. The private landowners, most of them are still relatively small scale mm. compared with the many tens of thousands of hectares that some of these big government bodies and businesses own. Mm. Yeah, I think that's, that, that's the thing, isn't it? It's the big challenge. You've got to get the big boys on board. Yeah. Um, so we've, we've sort of, um, actually, we, we're talking a lot about animals, but I think we'll come to that in a minute. So firstly, though, what about time scale? So you've mentioned sort of two years, you can see a significant change. Yeah. Is, is that kind of when you really start seeing the big difference? Does it take that long or does it take a little bit longer or can it be quicker? It does depend where you are. If you're, if you're in a more extreme upland situation, um, then obviously it can, take, it can take longer than that. Yeah. Um, so it depends but, how degraded it is, I suppose. Yeah, but yeah. in much of southern Britain, you will see, if you're, if you're removing intensive grazing, for example, mm -hmm. or you're stopping cropping, Usually it's cropping of fodder crops to, to feed animals. Uh, if you're stopping cropping, you will see a dramatic change in a couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, enough, enough to certainly to measure bioabundance changes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, that's interesting. It's, well, it's, it's incredibly good news, really, I think, is the key that it can be such yeah, yeah. a quick and rapid response. Yeah, and people want to see it. <laughs> well, exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah they want to yeah. see it in the, you know, quickly because... Um, that, you know, most of the virtually well, all of these, all of these private landowners I'm dealing with, and of course, all of the environmental NGOs, are doing it because they think it's the right thing to do. Well, they indeed. they need it to work financially. Yeah. Um, but um, they they are driven by the desire to leave the land they're responsible for in a better state for future generations. Yeah. Well, I think that's the key, isn't it? It's, I think our mindset is shifting now to be more forward thinking than it yeah. perhaps has been over the last few decades. Yeah. Which is what's you know, what we need really. Yeah. I hope you've enjoyed the episode so far. Here's a quick message from one of our sponsors. Make sustainability a priority throughout the design process with a suite of tools built specifically for landscape architecture and design. Vectorworks gives you the freedom to follow your imagination wherever it may lead. With remarkably flexible software that integrates BIM for landscape and GIS workflows, sketch, model, and document in a single tool with the world's most design-centric BIM solution. Discover Vectorworks Landmark and design without limits. Visit vectorworks.net to learn more. Um, okay then, so should we come to, to, the, to animals? I think it's one mm. of the things people immediately think of when they think of rewilding. Yeah. Um, but first, do we want to talk a little bit more about the deer issue to sort of like frame 
some of the species introduction first, because we've obviously talked about deer being a big issue for, for obviously grazing and keeping down, stopping regeneration, that kind of thing. Um, and I don't think people often realize how big of an issue deer actually can be in this country. I think I was looking at some statistics a few years ago because I studied deer management actually. And um, back then, I think it was something like that they estimated the deer population across the whole country to be about three times what it would naturally be, which is obviously causing huge amounts of pressure um, on ecosystems as well as farmland, as well as all of these sort of natural systems. And because of that, it stifles new growth. So it can really stifle natural regeneration, which is obviously, as you've said, one of the key things you want to see when it comes to rewilding and sort of being able to take a step back. Hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, it's patchy. First of all, there are some yeah. parts of the country, country where that I've been to where deer are not an issue at all. Yeah. There are other parts where they're not an issue at the moment, but they soon could be. Yeah. And then there are some places where they're a massive problem. Yeah. Um, Remember, rewilding is very much about restoring natural processes. And one yeah. of those natural processes is the interaction between carnivores, herbivores, soil, vegetation, soil and water. You know, those, mm. the, the, that trophic interaction, trophic tiers uh, interaction. And, um, and of course, we are missing the, the natural predators of deer. Mm. We're missing lynx and we're missing wolf from the natural environment. And given that hunting of deer and, and to a certain extent eating of venison has declined mm -hmm. in the last hundred years or so quite dramatically, uh, we are, you're right, we're now in a position where there's more than ever in history because mm -hmm. uh, you don't have any, any natural predators. So what we say to, in the absence of lynx and wolf, we say to the landowner, well, you need to be the wolf. Mm -hmm. you know, you're going you know, to try and have to try and manage these large herbivores mm -hmm in a way that has minimum impact on the rest of the ecosystem. Yeah. Um, and if you're going to harvest them, you may as well use them for food. Mm -hmm. But in parallel to that, we must be pushing for the reintroduction of lynx in mm -hmm. appropriate places in this country. And indeed, that is, that is already happening. Yeah. And I was absolutely delighted to see, literally this morning, I was sent um, by the deer management group, Alistair Boston, uh, contact that I have, uh, uh, a forestry commission webinar mm. on deer management, which had within it a presentation by David Hetherington, an expert on lynx mm. in this country. Because lynx will have to be part of the solution in mm. the future if we're going to get on top of this. Yeah. Um, and we need, we, you know, we, we need lynx back in the right landscapes anyway. And so I can see lynx back in Scotland and Northern England and maybe one or two other parts of England or Wales in my lifetime, I can see yeah. that happening. Um, unfortunately, I can't see wolf reintroduction into the wild. Mm. I mean, and when I'm talking reintroduction, I mean not into enclosures, I mean yeah. the wild. Um, I, I can't see wolf happening in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. um, it may happen at some point in the future, but because we're so detached mm. from nature in this country, and we're so detached from apex predators and even big native herbivores, we've lost completely lost sight. Mm. I mean, only the other day I saw yet another Facebook post thinking that beavers ate fish, yeah. you know, from somebody who was looked like they were trying to speak authoritatively on the subject. So we've got such a, such a way to go to, to start to recapture our proper understanding of how mm. they fit in with the ecosystem and how man can coexist quite happily with them. Um, that we are going to have to do it stepwise, yeah. you know. And so we're in at the moment. We're in the beaver, pine martin, 
phase, a white-tailed eagle phase, mm. if you like, of reintroductions, we will then have to move into the, yeah, the, the, the lynx phase yeah. before maybe in the future after that we can get into the wolf phase. Yeah, but you know it's that's unfortunately that's human nature, and and I won't I won't necessarily see it yeah. uh, all the way through. Well, I'm, I'm, yeah, well, I might not either. <laughs> I hope I hope, I hope to. you do. I hope to. But um, <coughs> I think so. Let's talk a bit about the different types of animals. If yeah, that's okay. So typically, we've already mentioned that some of the. So okay, let's let's start with sheep. Ravens, so sorry, ravens coming over. This oh, is a right. new addition to our. So this is a nut. Sorry, just as an aside, this is a a natural recolonization. Mm. So they weren't present in this village five years ago, and now we've yeah. got two or three nesting pairs. Oh, wow. And they are, they're not apex predators, but mm. they're meso-predators that were formerly wiped out through persecution mm -hmm. uh, uh, and poisoning. And yeah. it's great to see them back. Sorry, that was a little detail. No, but <laughs> just for everyone, anyone listening and not watching, some yeah. ravens just flew over us. Yeah. Um, so, so I think, so that's a really good example. So. Yeah. If we could run through some of the animals of maybe why some of them are an issue, i.e. sheep. Yeah. We've already talked about deer, and then talk about some of the other animals that we regularly use and why. And then we can go into some of the reintroductions that have happened and the ones that may come in the future that we've, we've not talked about. Yeah. So, so obviously sheep are a big issue. And sheep are a big issue because one, they're intensively farmed. Um, it causes water to sheet off hilltops. It's obviously very, it's degraded ecologically. Um, and they tend to eat grass so it's very, very short. Well, yeah, they nibble very short, very yeah. close cropping. And they're also quite selective of, they, they're very good at finding wildflowers, for example, and because yeah. and, they have different mineral mm -hmm. nutritional value to grass. And they're, and they're brilliant at, you know, picking those out. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so there's the impact on uh, floral diversity. And then there's the compaction impact on soils of having large numbers in the same yeah. place for prolonged periods. Mm -hmm. You could still have a few sheep in a rewilding project and it wouldn't make any difference to mm -hmm. the biodiversity and the, and the natural processes. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's the fact large numbers same place, long periods. It's the same with anything, though, isn't it? You know, any any sort of monoculture, so to speak. Yeah. Um, be it trees in a forestry plantation can yeah. obviously have negative impacts. And, 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 and so, the problem with the problem is that because it's uh, largely an industry that can't, you know, won't make money mm. without subsidy. It's really tough for these farmers to make it pay. Uh, you know, doing it at scale. Uh, it gives them more chance, and that mm -hmm. so it drives. You know, this is where the common agricultural, common agricultural policy has driven farmers to try to produce more and more from the same piece of land, and yeah. um, and of course we've got to try and move away from that approach. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So some of the other species we mentioned: ponies, pigs, cows. Yeah, they're the three that you typically see on rewilding projects, aren't they? They're the ones that would yeah, come and, and conservation more, projects. Cattle much more than pigs, and pigs much more than ponies. Just you know, Really? Because sort of, yeah, I, yeah. I very often, okay, not rewilding, but many projects I've been involved with have primarily had ponies and cattle, yeah, but I think it's because it's easier to look They'll be lowland projects. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. so most of the upland projects I know don't have ponies. Okay. But they could do, you know, there yeah. are Carnethi ponies, for example, mm. which um, we'd love to see involved more in rewilding projects in Wales, if mm. only there were more rewilding projects yeah. in Wales. Um, yeah. But um, but yeah, cattle are the, cattle are the most commonplace, mm. small numbers, and they'll pick rare breeds suitable to that part of the country. Yeah. And the idea is, the basic idea, the sort of NEP idea is, if you have a mix of these things, you have a mix of herbivory going mm. on, you have a mix of impacts on different types of vegetation, different places, different times of year, you get this heterogeneity, this mosaic effect mm. in the landscape. 
Yeah, that's it. And I think that's why I always remember from doing work with the Wildlife Trust, they were explaining why cattle are so important as well for creating um, more unique and a variety of habitats because of the way they eat. And this is why they used to use horses, and not the only reason, of course, as you just mentioned, but the reason they used to use cattle and ponies on their projects was cows come in and when they eat, they wrap their tongue around grass and they pull it out. So you actually create lots of little divots and holes yep. um, and, and rip up vegetation to allow new things to seed and grow in its place. That's right. So yeah. it, it helps change the, the very makeup of meadow and grassland yeah. spaces. They all um, have their own biting and chewing yeah. methods. And of course, then there's um, the, the the poaching of the ground, the disturbance yeah. of the ground, particularly the pigs, of course, yeah. do that. The rootling, the unearthing of seed, mm -hmm. the creation of little wet pot where water sits sometimes yeah, and where it doesn't in other places. Mm. All that, all that mosaic effect, all that, that multiple multiple effects in different places at different times, that contributes towards this this recovery of natural processes. Exactly. I think a really interesting example that always stuck with me, which is why pigs can be so valuable, it, it, it which is such a strange um, species. I can't remember exactly what it's called, but it's a but it's a type of shrimp that lives in tadpole shrimp. Yeah, yeah, basically yeah. lives in puddles. And I remember yeah. we were doing work on some conservation sites and um, we were always encouraged to drive as roughly and rudely and yeah. deeply through all of the divots and you were being ruts the and everything. Ball, basically. Yeah, basically, yeah, to churn up these puddles and bits of ground. Yeah. So to and, and the the um, the eggs of the shrimp stick on the tires and they get carried to the next puddle <laughs> and move through. And obviously that's what boar and pigs would have done. So, yeah. but we didn't have them on those sites. So yeah. that's another really good example of, of of why these different species are so valuable and yeah. how they can help carry and encourage other species to move through sites and 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 spread and be more prolific where wherever they historically declined or yeah. know, been in small abundance yeah. or not been in abundance. I mean, the, 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 there's the, the lovely Nep story with the turtle dove, the connection between the pigs and the turtle doves at Nep. So the pigs, because obviously they've they've allowed um, re-wetting of the land at Nep, yeah. you know, breaking up land drains and water sitting on the clay for mm -hmm. longer in, in certain places. So there's these wetter areas and the pigs then start rootling around in those areas. They create the bare soil then suddenly there's a seed bank of mm -hmm. interesting what we call arable plants but yeah. basically plants of bare earth mm -hmm. um starting to appear from below um and they produce seeds which the turtle doves feed on they mix the seed these are interesting seeds of this wide nutritional mix of of uh, plants with water to feed their young and mm. you know that right there the pigs have actually contributed mm. towards the recovery of turtle doves, as well as, of course, of all the um, scrub and um, yeah. tree growth that's appeared. <laughs> so yeah, there's and and there will be a lot more surprises around the corner as well. As we do more and more of this, we're gonna f we're gonna learn more and more about how these animals contribute to certain native species recovery yeah. stuff we don't know anything about. At the well, moment. I think that's one of the things that stuck with me from reading the Wilding book was actually that. Um, they sort of realized that so many of the species are actually living on the fringe of their actual habitat. So for example, a lot of species that are associated with woodland are not actually woodland species. They're only living in the woodland yeah. because their actual habitat's been destroyed. Exactly. Um, yeah. And now, now, that they're, now they're coming out of the woodlands and they're only seen there for a bit of shelter, yeah. which, which a lot of people didn't anticipate That's right. or, or yeah, didn't yeah, yeah. when they started now. Yeah. Um, so let's go into some of the other, some of the introductions that have already happened yeah. and why what role they play and why they're important. So the, probably the biggest one is the beaver. Yeah, yeah, that's the, so um, I've got records uh, of who's doing what in, mm. in um, reintroductions and who's planning to do what as well. And, and beaver is by far the most popular. Mm -hmm. um, 
and quite rightly so because it is the it's the number one ecosystem engineer mm -hmm. and if we're going to restore natural processes one of the one of the most rapid ways we can do that in riverine and wetland situations is with beavers mm -hmm. now i spent you know uh, uh, decades of my career doing and promoting river restoration and wetland creation but beavers can do it far more efficiently and cheaply yeah. and um and and I've also been involved in in discussing beaver introduction for 37 years. Mm -hmm. I was first asked way back in the 80s about it in the Thames catchment. So we waited a very long time for for beavers. As you know, they're spreading in Scotland and doing well. And we now have at least eight sites in England and Wales that I know of with wild with a wild beaver population. Mm. Um, however, those are either accidental or deliberate you know, releases, mm -hmm. uh, accidental escapes or deliberate releases. Um, and we need to move to a point where it's being done properly, yeah. strategically, um, supported by government. Mm -hmm. And we're still not yet in the position where government have authorised any releases to the wild, apart from the trial project in Devon mm -hmm. on the River Otter. So so government really needs to get its finger out and, and start authorising a few licences around the country because there are... Plenty of organisations out there have been through all the hoops and hurdles. They're following the guidance to the book uh, and they're ready to go. Yeah. In the meantime, there's lots of enclosures being set up. And I don't have, I don't have a problem with that. I went to one this week uh, mm. on Monday at, near Basingstoke at mm. Ewhurst Park. Okay. Um, and we, they released two beavers there on Monday into a big enclosure. I don't have a problem with that because it, you, you remember we talked about stepwise approach to reintroductions yeah that is a that is a stepwise approach to getting society to understand more about them and understand what benefits they bring <laughs> and start to love them and respect them that's it uh, more, rather than fear them absolutely so so it's all it, building the case study yeah, exactly yeah. so yes it's not ideal we should be now grown up enough to be releasing to the wild with the right rules in place mm -hmm. But in the meantime, okay, let's you know keep going with enclosures until such time as we can start to then release from those points. Yeah, I think the thing is as well. I think the way to look at it with the enclosures is at least the population is coming up. Yes, as, as well, and yes. it's more and it's more That's diverse. Important. So when it Genetic, is cleared, we will actually yeah. ha hopefully have the first step there that they're actually spread out across a wide range and yeah. populations are starting to be stable even if they are within enclosures and then hopefully as you yeah. say they can be that's right can yeah. be it out. adds genetic diversity to yeah. it so that's important and then other species um pine martin of course is uh, yeah. is um is being reintroduced to various parts you know mid wales project was very yeah. successful forest of dean looks like it's very successful too um, but also they're popping up in one or two places, you know, yeah. like the new forest. Yeah, yeah. And you wonder, oh, how has that happened? And mm. and this is and this is part of the challenge. If if government doesn't get its act together on species reintroductions and start being more flexible, and and uh, and and moving from a, I describe it as moving. They need to government needs to move from a no why mm. to a yes if approach yeah. to this. Uh, if it doesn't get its act together on this, then you know I strongly suspect you will see more under the radar. Mm -hmm. introductions and that's not what we want yeah we want it done properly yeah um strategically with public support yeah um so anyway so pine martins that's happening white-tailed eagles slowly happening again lots of mythology around this yeah shifting baseline syndrome people don't know what these things do and how they behave and trying to convince people they're not going to sweep Absolutely. your baby out of its pram is mm. you know more difficult than it should be <laughs>
<laughs> Absolutely. So, so what's the benefit of, so why um, are pine martins, for example, such a good species to reintroduce? Well, again, they have a, you know, they can have a role in, um, in ecosystem function and, mm. you know, natural, you know, natural balance in the ecosystem, because we now know from research in Scotland and Ireland that they, they help to reduce grey squirrel numbers and they mm. help red squirrels to bounce back. Mm. Um, and that's partly because uh, they, they are more likely to be able to catch grey squirrels because grey squirrels are heavier, they're less likely to be able to escape to the tips of uh, branches and trees. Mm. And also because grey squirrels spend a lot of time on the ground where mm. pine mantis hunt a lot of the time. Mm. So, so it's partly the, the direct predation of pine martins on grey squirrels. Uh, red squirrels being able to escape to the tips of branches more like more frequently, um, but also the fear factor mm. for grey for grey squirrels might mean that population. I think is there are signs now showing that they're they're likely to be dispersing uh, themselves and make it maybe basically trying to make sure they stay out of the way mm. uh, more. So probably grey grey squirrel numbers are thinning, yeah. not not through direct predation but just through, through the fear factor mm. um, and that allows red could allow or is allowing red squirrels to recover in some areas mm -hmm. so we desperately need that in England and Wales of yeah. course because we've got so few red squirrels that's it and also the damage they cause to timber production and, and, well. and, and uh, yes sorry and then of course mm. the knock-on effect on on timber and young growth etc that yeah. grey squirrels cause anything that can reduce that mm. uh, has got to be a good thing and, and pine martins could do it for us Absolutely, and I was reading as well that part of the reason why they think, so what they found in Scotland that greys make up a much more proportional part of their diet than reds. Yeah. And one of the other reasons why they think that is um, it's potentially to do with camouflage and things too, because obviously they've evolved together, pine martens and reds, yeah. whereas grey squirrels were introduced, so they're not I hadn't heard that dealing one, with that yeah, predator. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's a, I mean, that's, I think that, that research has been part of the reason why the pine martin reintroduction has been slightly easier yeah. to uh, get support for well, than I originally expected it to be. I, I think you're right. I think the Forestry Commission can see immediately see the, the benefit in yeah. protecting their, you know, their timber crops. Yeah. Um, and a lot of foresters are very much for that because one of the biggest issues for woodland owners is managing is managing um, grey squirrels. Yeah, yeah. It's a huge cost and yeah. a huge challenge. And obviously a lot of people don't want to see squirrels being... Yeah taken care of so to speak and then we got other species like white white-tailed eagle golden yeah. eagle wildcat you know they're all being worked on at the moment mm -hmm. um but uh the thing i often like to point out is not just about these sort of charismatic megafauna at the top yes. you know i've got a list of um close to 50 species now that are either being reintroduced or being planned for reintroduction on rewilding sites in England and Wales. And they, they extend all the way down to, to um, you know, plants, invertebrates, and even mycorrhizal fungi. Mm. Um, so uh, actually none of them, I don't think any of them include links. No, none of them include links, for example. Mm. Um, uh, relatively few, few include pine martin because you can't really just do that at a site scale. That's, yeah, that's you know, that's scale, huge. Yeah. You need a huge number of landowners involved if you're going to do a species reintroduce a species like pine martin. So m most of them are actually looking at plants, invert, you know, butterflies, mm. um, uh, very, you know, various other species like large marsh grasshopper and um, maybe amphibians and reptiles. Hmm. Interesting. So what? So um, when it comes to some of these species, I mean, 
I'm kind of interested in the attributes of them, so to speak. You know, so for example, the white-tailed eagles. Obviously, we've had kites and things that have been reintroduced around mm. a lot of the country, and they're doing really well. But some, what's the difference between eagles? Just just to give another example of why some of these species are so important, what's the benefit of some of these eagles? Obviously, they're another predator coming in to control um, other bird species potentially, or are they primarily scavengers like kites? Yeah, well, I'll give you I'll give you a sort of overall picture of um, how it how it can make a difference. I've got um, quite a well-known uh, cutting from a, a document in the 1800s, which was a basically a register of uh, gamekeeper kills mm. on a, an estate in Scotland over a three-year period. And that list of gamekeeper kills, and, I, and this is not having a go at gamekeepers, this is just saying what the, it gives you a feel for the sheer number of predators mm. of different types that there were around in Scotland at that point in time, in the 1830s, I think it was. And you, and the list is, you know, I can't give you the exact figures, but it's something like Pine Martin, 43. Golden Eagles, 67. White-tailed Eagles, 38. Um, Otter, 27. Wildcat, 65. You know, the list goes on. The list is huge. The numbers mm. are big against all of these things. And those are just the things that were being killed mm. uh, at that point in time. So that straight away tells you, just think about the yeah. pyramid mm. of food that is underneath that, that, that apex yeah. with all those uh, huge numbers of, of predators. And then on the list, they've got things like crows, 17, mm. foxes, six. Yeah. And right there, it tells you, okay, whether you believe those stats or not, they're going to be, you know, yes, they might have exaggerated some of them maybe to impress their owner, but the relative numbers mm. between these more apex predators and the meso predators, the generalists like foxes and crows, is really striking. Yeah. Very small numbers compared with, you know, things like pie martin, otter and mm. eagles, etc. So we, we and, and of course, we know we have massive problems with, crow predation and fox predation, for example, of breeding waders in, mm. in this country, uh, and, and indeed lots of other things. They are probably at numbers that they've never been before in history as well, these, these generalists mm. that have adapted to man very, very comfortably. So we need to get these things like the white-tailed eagle, golden eagle, etc., back in the landscape, not just for their own sake, because they deserve to be back in the landscape. We wiped them out. We've got a moral duty to get them back. Absolutely. But we, but also in getting them back, it might actually help to reduce the numbers of other things back to a more natural level. Mm. That's a really good way to look at it. So what? Um, so one other animal that's talked about a lot at the moment is sort of the bison on Europe. So the bison have been reintroduced to Kent now, haven't they? Yeah, yeah, to Blean Woods uh, in Kent, mm. which is an enclosure, so it's not yeah. a wild reintroduction. <clears throat> and of course, um, we, you, as you probably know, we don't know for sure that bison are here. They haven't actually found any fossil remains mm. of bison on mainland Britain. They've been found on, the, I think, on the Dogger Bank mm. in the North Sea. But that's not really the critical point here. The critical point is we no longer have aurochs, the ancient cattle, mm. uh, which for, to which European bison are, relatively speaking, closely related. And so the ecosystem function and the natural processes that they engender are, are similar, mm -hmm. not in every way, but in some ways, yeah. to those of aurochs. Yeah. And, and we know this from, you know, obviously from bone tooth structure and mm. all the rest of it, uh, f food, etc. So 
for me, I don't have a problem with bison reintroduction in Britain where appropriate. Uh, and I mean reintroduction into the wild where appropriate. Um, the big challenge around them is dogs off leads, particularly. Mm -hmm. I've been to see bison reintroductions in the continent. Um, and people generally, people are not so, not a, so much of an issue, but they, bison are very wary about dogs. Mm. So, so there are challenges. So I, I, I can only envisage them being released into big enclosures. Mm. Um, now I think the, the enclosure in, um, Bleen Woods is, is, it's starting, they're starting small, but they're gradually increasing the enclosure mm. size, I think up to around 250 acres in, in due oh, okay. course. Mm -hmm. At the moment, it's quite a small enclosure. It's all, they've already had a calf, I, so uh -huh. uh, mm -hmm. so. But that is, but that will increase in size. But what they're doing there is a really interesting experiment, comparing the impact of bison mm -hmm. in a woodland situation with that of longhorn cattle mm -hmm. in a in a, in another half of the same woodland area. Yeah. So it's a really nice side by side mm -hmm. comparison. And if they found, for example, that bison didn't do anything significantly different to the longhorn cattle. And you can say, okay, well, we probably don't need to worry about yeah. introducing bison then, because there'd be a lot more hassle associated with that. Yeah, we'll stick with the cattle, but mm -hmm. I don't, I doubt that will be the case. I'm sure you will find a different impact. Mm. Okay, that's interesting. That's interesting to know. Um, so finally, then finishing up on the animals, what do you think is the most significant species that could be reintroduced? Um, um, or that has recently been introduced? Because I imagine the two you'd probably look at would be lynx or beaver. Yeah. But is there, is there another animal or is it one of those two that you think no, is probably no, it's the beaver. most influential? No, I, I can't, you know, uh, I can't go beyond beaver. Beaver mm. are, are transformational in terms of their... Now, of mm. course, they're a, they're a wetland, yeah. river and wetland species, but um, they are transformational in terms of their impact in those mm. environments. And they do so much for other species. You see, a, you know, dramatic recovery of amphibians and dragonflies mm. and water voles. And, and also, they're, they're a fantastic ambassador mm -hmm. for encouraging the general public to feel more comfortable about rewilding because mm. you know the popularity of these sites where they've been introduced uh, their popularity in those communities is great and it, yeah. you know, it's actually contributing to the local economy as well mm. so i i can't really um yeah i can't go beyond beaver really <laughs> they are the number one by far okay that's good so then should we go on to a bit of sort of the challenges towards rewilding so we've talked a bit about you know, so there is sometimes this issue around public perception. Uh, there is the government issue of them not necessarily letting things be released into the wild and they've got to be kept. But there's other things that we talked about before we came on and started recording around things like the retained EU law and how that mm. might have an impact on um, nature conservation and enhancing and protecting the natural world. Um, and then obviously there's things that the government will need to do yeah. to help facilitate rewilding yeah. um, to be much more effective than it is now, maybe to make it a quicker, more yeah. streamlined process. Yeah, I think we, we are now at the stage where the really big difference is down to government. Yeah. You know, we, as I say, we've got 80% plus rating for you know, support rating for rewilding. Lots of people starting to do it privately. Um, but to make that step change, to move from where we are, we're probably at about, in, in England and Wales, we're probably at around half a percent mm -hmm. of the land that's what I would call rewilding, and most of that's quite low down the rewilding spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and we want to get to 5%. So, mm -hmm. so you know, to, to, to make that tenfold increase, we, we will need policy change with funding 
backing it up. Mm. And the first thing is not to abandon the legislation that is helping to protect the best of what we got, mm. which is what this retained EU legislation bill is all about. Uh, they're looking to sweep away lots of great legislation that we've put in place, much of which, by the way, it might have been European law, but it was written by by Brits, yeah. um, uh, including uh, dear old Boris's dad, Stanley yeah. Johnson, who helped um, craft the Habitats Directive. Um, so the first thing is don't abandon the best, uh, all the good legislation we've got. Keep yeah. that in place because we need to keep the best. Uh, and by the way, abandoning that legislation won't just damage the environment, it'll damage the economy as well. Mm. Um, so it's, it's a double hit. And the second thing is then to build on um, the environment, environmental legislation and back it up with good policy. We've got mm. a 25-year environment plan. You know, we've got you know, you know, environmental commitments in place, mm -hmm. 30 by 30, to restore 30% of the land for nature by 2030. That's a massive challenge. Mm -hmm. Land and water, not just land. Um, now we have to back it up with policy and funding. And one mm -hmm. of the most important ways that we can do that is by making sure that the environmental land management scheme, which is the replacement for the common agricultural policy that we, that we, so we've adopted this ELM scheme as it's called, which is all about rewarding farmers for delivering public mm -hmm. goods. Flood, better flood risk, better water quality, carbon sequestration, better biodiversity, access, education, etc. That's a great, it's a great idea. I was, in, I've been involved for many years in helping government to develop the thinking behind it. Now they have to put their money where their mouth is. Mm -hmm. And and they need to particularly put their money where their mouth is on the landscape recovery bit of that scheme, which is the yeah. large-scale stuff, and the local nature recovery bit, the mid-tier, which is now, mm -hmm. I gather, called stewardship or enhanced stewardship or something. That's where the bulk of the money needs to now go. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, it's just business as usual. Mm -hmm. They put it all in sustainable farming incentive or a large proportion of it there, which is what, the NFU and others are seeking, that's not going to move us forward. That's mm. just treading water. Mm. Um, we need to make a step change towards na nature recovery. And and this this piece of policy is absolutely critical. Mm. Okay, that's interesting. Um, I suppose the last thing then is how do you fund these rewilding schemes? Because obviously if farmers are reducing the amount of food they're producing, be it reducing lamb um, production by 50% or taking even some less productive areas out of production, yeah. what models are there to help them facilitate that and, and produce an income in the longer term from, from the yeah. land? So if we take the private, so this is the private, you know, the 25%, actually if you include small farms, it's probably around 30, 35% if you include far, small, medium farms, mm -hmm. as well as private estates. Um, so if you take that third of the rewarding world at the moment in England and Wales, um, the general picture is that this is unproductive land. They're struggling to make it pay. Uh, it's heavy clay, etc., and it's just not delivering mm -hmm. on food production. It's just not worth the effort. They're better focusing their efforts elsewhere on their land, or, or indeed not at all in some in the smaller farm situations. Mm -hmm. So. So that's the starting point. They're not, they're not making anything significant mm. from the land. And then they've got various options. Uh, it, in some cases, there are a few that are wealthy enough not to worry about income from the land at all. They've got other mm. sources of income and they just want to restore it for nature. Mm. Um, but that's a relative minority. Most of them, they need to, to at least wash its face, yeah. as they say. 
Um, and, um, and that will then usually involve them looking at some form of food production from the meat, you know, the high mm. quality meat, maybe other products from the land, including wild foods, mm. honey, etc. cetera. Um, then there's the, uh, often a strand around nature tourism, Mm-hmm. Camping, glamping, safaris, tree houses now. Tree mm-hmm. houses are becoming a thing, um, and nature, you know, nature tours, etc. Yeah, um, that's quite commonplace, mm-hmm. and um, probably probably of the private private uh, estates and farms, more than half are considering that as an option. Mm-hmm. And some of them are going to go the whole hog and do all of those things I described, and some are just going to do a little bit of light camping, yeah, uh, or, or maybe a B and B with a nature tour or something. Um, so it does vary. Um, and then, and then there's there's other sources of income like government subsidy. So just as they get subsidy when they were farming and get say stewardship payments for farming, they they will get stewardship payments for moving into rewilding, especially mm-hmm. given the fact that they probably will still have some cattle on that land. Mm-hmm. So they still tick the boxes for farming, if you like, under stewardship arrangements. Um, and then there's also now sources of funding through, obviously through biodiversity offsetting, mm-hmm. carbon offsetting, biodiversity net gain through the planning process, mm-hmm. nutrient offsetting, et cetera, mm-hmm. nutrient neutra- neutrality. There's all sorts of other little pots. Oh, and the Nature for Climate Fund, which is a mm-hmm. government fund for peat bog restoration and tree planting. All of these things are being accessed by some of the these rewilders. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, um, and that area of private sort of business-related income is only going to increase. Yeah, so the offset, you know, the offsetting stuff, mm-hmm. that's going to increase. So it's all voluntary at the moment, but yeah. it, you know, it's uh, it's moving in the right direction. Mm-hmm. The challenge is to make sure that it's spent in the right way, you know, doing the right things. Because as you know, a lot of carbon offsetting is just planting loads of sitka and doesn't do anything significant for biodiversity. Yeah, so that's not rewilding. That's mm-hmm. not at all rewilding. Doesn't take any of the rewilding boxes. So, um, so the general picture is that you then have a suite of five or six funding sources for your project you're not Mm. reliant on just sheep selling sheep selling lamb for example or 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 cattle or whatever Mm. or dairy um and if you've got if if you've got these several of these income sources if one's struggling a bit chances are the others are okay and that and that is a more reliable way forward than just putting all your eggs in one basket more robust business structure yeah yeah Yeah. so that's that's typically how how it's going Mm. um and we are we are well below carrying capacity on ecotourism in this country you know i i'd say we probably go i don't know 2050 or beyond before if we carried on at this rate it would take decades before we got to the point where we're starting to wonder have we got enough (laughs) you know because it's you know, people are still travelling huge distances to go to NEP. Right, well, a friend of mine just travelled from Devon to go to NEP. Yeah, yeah, yeah. people are having to travel right across the country. Eco- mm. And seasoned ecologists like me will travel across the country to go to NEP because it's yeah. still delivering massive uh, ecological mm. surprises. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we oh, so such a long way to go <laughs> before we get to the point where you can just pop 20 miles down the road and see that in every county. That's yeah. what we should aspire to. Some, some deer, I think, about there. Was it deer? 
rabbits. Those are rabbits. Yeah, They're massive yeah. rabbits. <laughs> oh, yeah, they are rabbits. Yeah, they are, yeah. I just I saw the tail and I was yeah. looking, at, looking for deer lately. <laughs> yeah. I saw the white tail and I thought, oh, <laughs> That's embarrassing. We'll have to cut that bit. Ah, <laughs> uh, no yeah. wonder you were so worried about deer. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Don't slip actually, 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 actually looking for my dinner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's They're it. everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I think that's yeah. a really interesting point to sort of sort of stop on. So I think it, it's really interesting to show that actually, yeah, it's not just about sort of, um, you know, from a farm or landowner's perspective, it's not necessarily just about sort of nature enhanced, but actually it's creating a more diverse sort of business portfolio, a stronger um, sort of basis, a more robust, uh, robustness, shall we say, to, to your business yeah, yeah. as well, but, you know, where it's not at risk from necessarily just a bad season or anything like that. Yeah. Um, it's being able to get a multitude of benefits coming through. Yeah, and, and the thing I want to emphasize is that not only does it give you a more resilient business, mm -hmm. but it's creating jobs. And I touched earlier on this, but 65% increase in jobs, a tenfold increase in volunteer engagement on these yeah. rewilding sites compared with beforehand, tenfold. And, and, that, and that then brings with it all these community benefits, you know, health mm -hmm. and well-being benefits of being actively yeah. involved in a site, uh, hopefully close to where you live, mm -hmm. where you can feel you're contributing and you have a sense of ownership of it. Mm -hmm. um, so there's all these spin-offs for other things like health and well-being and education, which we're barely scratching the surface with so far. Mm. No, I think, I think you're right. I think it's an incredibly interesting area. And um, I'd love to have you back on at some point in the next couple of years or so, just yeah. to find out how things have progressed, what's changed, and maybe we can go and have a look at some of these sites to see, actually see what sort of happened and, and how things are moving. Yeah. Because it's such a fascinating topic and it's such a hot topic as well that I, I think in the next couple of years things will really Yeah, really if we can if we get lot. the government over the line on this, mm. you know, on these agricultural policies and funding, yeah. then that's a massive step forward. And the Absolutely. same applies by the way in Wales. Um, yeah. uh, Scotland's further ahead of the game to be mm. honest. But um, we need to catch up with them. Yeah. No, I think I'd love to hear hear from you yeah. then. But this well, it's been fan absolutely fantastic to have you. Thank you Thank so you. much for letting us come and film here as well. It's a beautiful spot. Thank you. And um, I look forward to speaking to you again in the future. Yeah, great. Oh, yeah. Cheers. Thank Thanks. you. Cheers. Sorry to interrupt, but we have a quick message from one of our sponsors. And it's that we're thrilled to announce that Marshalls is the sponsor of this episode. As the UK's leading supplier of sustainable concrete and natural stone products for the built environment, Marshalls is committed to doing the right things for the right reasons, delivered in the right way, ethically and sustainably. From fairly traded stone to low carbon concrete bricks, Marshalls believes we can create better spaces, putting people, communities, and the environment first. Find out more about the firm's green initiatives in our podcast links below. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you're interested in finding out more about how you could get more wildlife into your garden, projects, or landscapes, then check out our episode with John Little, where we talk about just that. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share to friends and colleagues who might be interested. A huge thank you, as always, to our incredible sponsors, Marshalls, Vectorworks, and Water Offsets, our incredibly kind supporters, Gillian Goodson Design and the Birmingham Botanical Gardens, and of course, NDLA and Monster Don for powering this episode. Thanks, everyone, and see you next time. <laughs>